but hope is not a strategy. <laughs> hope, is, a hope is a strategy. It's just not a good one. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. And with me, as always, is my peripheral connection consultant, Persona Maliandi. How's it going, Persona? I'm good, Curtis. Oh, man, is this in reference to our recent conversation about the number of devices on your I hate, I hate this new world. I really do. (laughs) Like, I, I, you know, it wasn't that long ago that... I had, you know, a, I had a laptop that had ports, and then the only thing that I connected to it was power and a, an external display, and 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 I didn't, and it had like a, it had an SD slot, and mm-hmm. and it had and it had a couple of USB ports, and occasionally I would connect USB thing USB things. Now everything is external. And I have this rat's nest of cables on my desktop, and I just I just hate it. <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even like the like the you know I'm definitely not you know one of those like neat freaks that I'm bothered by the fact that it makes my desktop look messy. It's just I, it just annoys me. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Can you make it better? Yeah, uh, one way to do that is basically don't use devices. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other way is, well, and the problem is there aren't any real great alternatives. Like even for audio, I don't know about you, but I plug in my headphones every time because yeah. Bluetooth, while great, it's not the best. And especially when doing like podcasts, the lag is still there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for yeah. mics and all the other things, it's like you have to use USB. So I have, a, I have a four, four, seven port USB three hub and plugged into that right now is my camera, my, my ring light. Um, let's see, uh, some sort of, oh, and then, uh, my, what is that? What is this? Oh, the USB C, the mic that I'm talking in right yeah. now. <laughs> um, plus looks like, uh, some phone chargers, uh, and this, ca- and the camera that we're using, cause we, we have a camera that the, the Listeners don't Extra know, but we're looking at each other yeah. right now. We're, we're remote, um, but it's like we're together. Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> one day, Curtis, one day. <laughs> one, one day, no, but, we'll but, see each other again. But, but, but based on that list that you just said, though, mm-hmm. like the ones that you're only using power, you could potentially just plug it into a surge strip. Yeah, yeah right, there's a couple, the there are a couple that I'm only using power. Um, yeah, yeah, I could. See, these are the things that you consult with me on. Um, and, um, anyway, uh, and of course, oh, because one of them is a keyboard. I could have a wireless keyboard, but I don't like the Mac wireless keyboards. I've found them unreliable. That's my own personal opinion. Same thing with the wireless, with their wireless mouth. I have, I have a, um, I have a, a JTEC digital, uh, it's a, what do you call it? It's, um, uh, it's a, what do you, what do you call this? It's here. The, you can see the camera. It's the, oh, the, the yeah, ergonomic, the ergonomic ones. ones. Yeah. The yeah. I, I got, re- I get real carpal tunnel using the regular mice anyway no one cares no one cares about me (laughs) and my problems i'll do our standard disclaimer persona works for zoom i work for druva this is not an official podcast of either company we are uh expressing our own opinions and remember to uh rate us uh if you like this podcast go to rate this podcast.com slash restore and tell us how wonderful we are on your favorite uh podcatcher and also you know if you're like dave here and you saw you know you you didn't see if you saw the podcast uh we need to uh, but if you listen to the podcast be a trick. and you found it interesting then uh reach out to us and you know you know we we love to talk about all sorts of things uh even databases so uh be sure to reach out to me at w curtis preston at gmail or wc preston on twitter so let's just so let's just bring on our guest he has been in the IT industry over 20 years, doing a variety of things. Um, you know, he's, he's been a, a, a process architect, a consultant, a Unix sysadmin. Um, I, you know, I, 
that that of course makes him near and dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> being a former Unix admin myself, he is now the enterprise architect at Cockroach Labs. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Lukens. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, how, how, how's it going over there? And where where are you geographically? I'm just outside Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, so, Ohio. Uh, at the moment, it's oscillating between strangely cool and very, very hot and humid. <laughs> ah, sounds, wonderful summers. Sounds beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, why why do we have you on, Dave? What 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 interest? So you you reached out to us. What, what interested you about the podcast? So a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago, um, in one of the many discussions you were having about the OVH fire, you started Ooh. to go down the path of uh, talking about uh, distributed applications and uh, high availability databases and you know, distributed databases in general. And uh, something I can actually talk about. And you said, I know one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So what, um, persona, do you want to summarize what got us to this point? So I think, uh, what we had done during the OVH fire, right. Is we talked about sort of, okay, what are potential ways? Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying we should, you know, if you don't know, like Google OVH fire, right. It it was a huge, um, if, you know, if you, if this is literally your first episode, go listen to our three or four other episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Well, it's huge. It's, it's like, yep. You know, it, it, in in the world of cloud, right? Remember, there is no such thing as the cloud. There's only somebody <laughs> else's data center. And in this case, th- it was the largest uh, cloud provider that is headquartered yeah. in Europe, and they lost an entire, basically what what I would call an availability zone. And uh, well, well, it was an entire data center. I think right next yeah, to it was it- another data center. That yep. was also damaged, but they didn't lose it. It it looks like it just melted to the ground almost, um, and 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 many many people, including um, some of Dave's customers, as we'll talk about, were involved in that. Um, and 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 there were what backups that didn't happen. You really, if if you if you haven't been listening to the previous episodes, you really need to go listen to those episodes. But yeah, the word cloud just means making it somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And hoping they deal with it too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, hope, but hope is not a strategy. <laughs> hope is a hope is a strategy. It's just not a good one. <laughs> so, so one of the things that we talked about. So in so Dave in an episode that we recorded yesterday, that if we release these episodes in order, will have been published. Before this, before this one goes, yep. uh, if I do my job and well, if I, well, whatever, if, if everything goes according to plan, eh. that episode will publish just before this episode. And we talked to, um, shoot, I completely lost my train of thought. Sabaya. Yeah, Sabaya. What was the thing that we were talking about? Multi-regional buckets. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we, we talked to, um, a uh, so what was he? He's the founder of. He's yeah. a VP of product. Yeah, we talked to the VP of product over there at Haiku that um, they use uh, uh, Google Cloud a lot, and one of the things that Google Cloud offers, which AWS does not yet offer, and I don't think um, uh, OVH offers either, is this idea of multi-regional object storage, right? So that if you put if you put an object in it it automatically replicates it, not just to multiple availability zones, but actually multiple things, you know, multiple regions, which I thought was, is, is pretty awesome. Right. And it, and it came at a, what was the cost differential? It was like two versus 2.6, something like that. Yeah. Something like persona? that. Yep. Yeah. So yep. it was just a little bit extra. And then suddenly your, um, your data is replicated across three, uh, regions of your choice, which is that's the, even the more impressive part to me. So we theorized, or we we mused, I think, during the podcast that it, it attracted your attention about this idea that there are uh, applications that just are automatically, um, you know, tolerant of of localized disasters like what happened at OVH. And it sounded like your company offers one of those. So t- tell us about Cockroach Labs. So yeah, Cockroach Labs creates a highly distributed um, uh, ACID compliant 
um, database that uh, prides itself on being very consistent. And as such, there's obviously multiple copies of your data store, uh, stored at Granges across you know, however many regions and AZs you end up configuring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that allows us to tolerate up to the loss of an entire region if you configure it properly. Um, that's so a pretty, fact, that's a pretty cost- big deal, right? You, you said a lot of things in one you know, <laughs> little sentence there. Yeah, there's a lot of information in there to unpack. A lot of it is database specific, but uh, if we look at the, the specifically the the redundant and high availability component of it, mm-hmm. uh, the way it's or, uh, the way it's orchestrated and operates internally is that the entire cluster is a single logical database. That, there is that, no master. Yeah. There is no primary. There is no secondary. There is no standby. Everything is active all the time. Yeah, so we got to come. We got to come back to yeah. that. Uh, can I yeah. guess why you called it Cockroach Labs? Um, go for it. Okay, Feel because guess. a cockroach will survive a uh, nuclear holocaust. Yeah, if you kill some, there's always more there in the swarm. <laughs> yeah. So, so funny story. My my first book. Uh, Unix backup and recovery with O'Reilly. You know, O'Reilly has animals and stuff, and and um, I, um, uh, I I reached out to them and I said, "Hey, I, I know I don't technically get to pick my animal, but I will. Li- I would like to suggest a cockroach on the cover of my book." And um, and <laughs> their response was, um, "This is this was their. I still remember this. So this was twenty what 21 years ago they said yeah we we reserve cockroaches for uh, oracle books or we reserve insects insects they said we reserve insects for for books about oracle i was like oh okay i don't understand that but yeah i just thought that was kind of funny that that bugs go on the cover of oracle books um but yeah so 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 it seems like i was right that um you just can't you can't kill a cockroach well you can you can kill a cockroach yeah. But, but there's always more behind yeah. it. There's always more behind it. I like it. Well, and especially with mission critical data being stored in databases, it becomes critical for the business, right? Mission critical for the business to ensure that that's highly available, right? And never lost. <laughs> right. Most definitely. Uh, they end up being, databases are basically part of the infrastructure any longer. They're an underlying shared service that just about any modern application runs upon and relies upon for absolutely everything. Um, you don't so, have your data store, you're kind of sunk. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's dig into, so, you know, not everybody is, um, you know, familiar with a lot of the terms that you threw out there. Let's start with, yes. um, so it is a SQL database, which means yes. it's, it's sort of a, it from, from a normal database person perspective, it's a quote unquote normal database from a functionality perspective would that be very much so it's right. uh, wire compatible with postgres so if you know how to write queries for postgres you can write queries for cockroachdb as well wire compatible what does that mean uh that means the the protocol that the client speaks to the server or the cluster with is the same thing that postgres uses okay so okay. someone if they basically had postgres they could swap it out for cockroachdb and then their clients don't have to change they just point to that instance if you will Theoretically, yes. Practically, the whole (laughs) nature of a distributed database is a a new beast. You generally Mm -hmm. need to rethink your data structures at that point. Mm. Uh, There's also the the gotcha that in a monolithic database like Postgres or MySQL or an Oracle instance that you can potentially get by with having things less than optimal because all of your data is in one, in one spot. Mm. If you have to sweep through a million records, it's all in one spot. You know, it happens in that one area. You don't have to pull all the data from across the continent, sort and sift it, sift through a million records, and then get what you need out of it. Mm. Uh, so that I means that you add latency in a distributed system if you try to get by with that. So there, there are a lot of optimization ends up going into the individual queries, the data structure itself, and making sure things properly use the ability and place to the strengths of a distributed database. So like, like every other part of uh, IT, basically, the, the, you can do certain things, but it's not necessarily the best idea. And there are best practices on how to configure things to, in ways to use your database the way it's meant to be used. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes okay. it is 
kind of straightforward to migrate something from Postgres to Cockroach. Sometimes it isn't, and sometimes <laughs> it's easier to start completely from scratch. Right. So let's talk about another term that you mentioned, uh, and that is acid compliance. What is what does that yes. mean? So acid compliance is a, a very much a database centric piece. It's basically the concept of of uh, the atomic nature of interactions, consistency of data, isolation between events going on in the database at the same time, and durability. Uh, each of these, of course, we can unpack, but uh, uh, the atomic nature basically comes around from um, it guarantees that each transaction is treated as a single unit of work. Right. So if you if you um, have a if you have a large uh, not query but a you're creating a record a transaction. Thank you. A large transaction yes. that has multiple things. That transaction will be treated as one giant thing versus each of the things in that being. Uh, and then. I know about consistency, and that's the one we're going to get to. That's really the one that's got to be difficult for a distributed database, right? And then, yes, um, especially when you're looking at highly consistent and uh, uh, databases that run at a serializable yes, isolation level. Yeah, and then the isolation, the I believe, is about like one transaction shouldn't affect another transaction. Uh, and then, and then durability, I think, is just you know, um, it's never the, lost the, once it gets stored. Right, right. It's, it's correct. Um, so one of the challenges. There is this concept of the CAP theorem, right, which is consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. My understanding is, because I'm, I'm not a database guy, I play one on TV, <laughs> and that is that you can have two but not three of these, and it would seem like this is where the challenge gets for you, where you're wanting to have consistency, but you're also wanting to do availability across multiple zones. And then the question is, you know, the question is, do you get, do you get performance or do you get um, durability, right? You know, that that's the challenge for you, I would think. Definitely. And the, the concept in the cap theorem of availability is slightly different than what you think of in a cloud provider of, hey, it's going to fail over to another AZ or another region. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of the cap theorem, the availability re refers to the, the ability for every, re every request to receive a response without the guarantee that it contains the most recent write. So you might get outdated data in right. that regard. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. So you can be very available, but the answer might not be right. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's good. And then the consistency is that's where we start about the concept of immediately consistent versus eventually consistent eventually. databases, right? Or or maybe eventually consistent in some cases with maybe other systems. Bit, what does that mean? Maybe if <laughs> uh, you know, it's along the like like UDP. We're going to make our best effort, but we're never going to guarantee. You know, mm, we can okay. never be right. certain we really have the most recent and I, value. And I've, I've I've always I've always struggled with that concept of eventually consistent databases, and the only the only application where I came up with that seemed like it was a functioning, eventually consistent database that didn't bother me was the way DNS works, right? Because it's sort of an eventually mm -hmm. consistent database, right? And and that it's okay yeah. if you get a slightly outdated thing, it, like nothing's going to die. You're just not going to be on the right website. But it, I've, I've always struggled with... For applications, what else would it... Yeah, that world where eventually consistent would be okay. But we don't have to go into it because you're not, you're not an eventually consistent database, right? You're... Correct. We okay. are we are most definitely a specific. A, we run a serializable isolation, which we'll get into in a moment. Yeah. But uh, that basically is the strictest level of consistency, uh, ensuring you're going to get the correct value when you go to yeah. query it. So no matter mm -hmm. who queries it, wherever they happen to be, and wherever the data happens to reside, they and will, whatever else is going on at that and, time. Right. Everyone well. will get the most recent answer that has been created for that query. That, did I yes. say that in in English? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I always struggle when I'm talking about database terms because, like I said, I, I I'm not a DBA or, or yes. an architect of databases. I try to I try to put it up into my brain. Um, yeah. But in terms of cockroach DB, yeah. Uh, in terms of the, the the CA and the P, we really focus on the consistency and the partition tolerance. Okay. If we lose quorum. Uh, or, or the data becomes under-replicated because so much of the cluster uh, had a failure that it encountered at once, uh -huh. we are going to stop returning data. Mm. We aren't mm. going to potentially offer up old or stale data. 
Oh, well, yeah, that, say, makes, that makes yeah, sense. Error, yeah. Right, so yeah. so you and, focus and, on the C and the P, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, yes. in, in storage, I remember um, some of the tier one storage providers would call that kind of a domino mode, where if something took it out, then all writes would stop and all reads just because you weren't sure what you would get back. Uh, though we've, in, it's been engineered in such a way that even with the loss of an, let's say you have a multi-region cluster set up, three, three regions or so, if you lose an entire region, there's still enough copies of the data there. We can still continue to perform writes to the rest of the cluster. Hmm. So we, we it's all based have, upon that's hurting my quorum. head. That's hurting my brain. Yeah. Quorum based writes, which, uh, uh, it's not necessarily a new concept. Uh, NASA came up with it in the seventies. Yeah. And if you look at the, the early renditions of the space shuttle, there were multiple control system computers on the space shuttle and they all, you know, they all did the same calculations. And if one of them came up with a different answer, it would basically vote amongst the group of, all right, what is the most common answer we got back? Hmm. And uh, there were five computers. If one of them started to flake out and give you strange answers, they would drop that one out of the, the, hmm. the forum and drop another one. So you had three. So you never had you know, a split brain of two and two. And yeah, basically they, they vote. And as long as we can do a write to the database and a quorum of nodes that holds that data comes back saying, I have it. We're good to go. That write is considered completed. Mm. So, so that's how it still continues running and being operational because the things yes. that failed are kind of kicked out of quorum, if you will. And I'm sure there's a process to synchronize once it's able to reestablish itself. Yeah. If a region comes back after a several hour failure, it, of course, isn't going to have timestamps or any of the new stuff that came along. Uh, we have this concept of a leaseholder, uh, which... Another another big term that we can get into the guts of databases, but it, we, we quickly get into the weeds very, very fast. Yeah. Um, but the leaseholder basically acts as a, a coordinator for any rights for a piece of data where we can, you know, if we lose the leaseholder, we will elect a new leaseholder within mm. a few moments. And another replica of that data becomes the leaseholder and starts to do work. Um, but when a, a region comes back after a potential failure, it is most definitely not the leaseholder. Yep. It rejoins the cluster, says, hey, this is the most recent timestamp I have. The leaseholder for that particular range of data says, hey, there's more stuff. You need it. And <laughs> the rest of the cluster starts catching up the pieces that are behind. Gotcha. The um, I, I guess I'm, I, I'm trying to understand the scenario in which you don't have enough uh, again, I'm trying to use the right terms. What, what uh, members of of the cluster? Is that what I'm looking for? Yeah, nodes within the cluster. Yeah, you you don't have enough. You have enough nodes to write data, but not enough nodes to read data. That's the part I'm trying to understand. Uh, you'll never be in that scenario. Okay, I thought uh, I, either. What, what was the scenario earlier where you said? We'll, we won't return queries. What was that scenario? Oh, that's if you lose quorum for a range of data, okay. we will not return any, you know, we won't return anything to a query. But it's like generate an error case, saying- that same, uh, oh, so it's quorum for a piece or a, a set of data. Yes. There could be, there could be uh, and, and maybe should be other sets of data that have their own sets of nodes that those could continue. Correct. The rest of the database could continue to function, but you say, Hey, we've lost quorum on this set of data. Yes. Okay. All and right. You won't get anything back at that point. It's entirely possible for a cockroach cluster to have hundreds of nodes in it. Right. Um, and with a replication factor of three, your quorum is two. And it's a matter of which three nodes out of that hundred hold a copy of that range of data. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can get to two of them at any point, you can continue to do writes and reads for that is, chunk of data. Is three the normal replication setting? Three is what comes out of the box for production work. I'd really recommend five or more. Mm -hmm. um, the trick there is keep it an odd number because yeah. <laughs> you don't want to get in. You don't want to try to have, you know, two and two, try to figure out what's going on because you don't have a majority then. But uh, for example, if you have six replicas of the data, your quorum is then four. You know, four of them have to acknowledge a write for a new piece of information that comes along. 
that doesn't buy you anything really. Um, oh, I see what you're saying. You're, five. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. When a user is setting up um, the number of nodes or the replication, um, do they specify it at a range or is that kind of internally done by the database itself? Both. There, there's mo- you, you can either go with a the, the most recent release has some very uh, straightforward and human digestible pieces that allow you to configure a regional table mm. that's going to survive a region failure or uh, the a, a range of data that'll survive the loss of an AZ. Mm-hmm. And it figures out where the pieces need to live based upon that. Gotcha. We can also much more specifically go in and say, all right, for the cluster I've defined, which is spans North America and Europe, there's five different regions. I want this piece of data for this table. You know, I want this table to live in the three regions of the US. I want this other table to live in two regions in the UK. Mm. And you know, I can then also specify a preference of where I want the leaseholder, basically the thing that's going to coordinate yeah. the work for that chunk of data. I can specify where I want that to live as well. And typically, do you put the leaseholder closest to where your clients are? Ideally, yes. Okay. Um, we do have the most definitely have the concept of follow the workload. Mm-hmm. So the leaseholders can move around and can move through your cluster. They they are going to yeah. whether you want them to or not. They're <laughs> going to um, just because that's how it works and that's how you distribute the load across the entire cluster. But uh, yeah, in a perfect scenario, your leaseholder is as close to your client or customer application as possible. Mm. And it will, doesn't always have to be the case, but usually one of the copies of the data is the same node that is the leaseholder for that Mm. data. Gotcha. When a customer is deciding on their replication level, Mm -hmm. is, does that choice affect their performance? Oh, most definitely. Okay. Um, I mean, one of the very first questions we ask some uh, a customer that comes along is, what scenarios do you want to be able to gracefully tolerate? If you only want to be able to tolerate the loss of an AZ within a single region, then we can put everything in one region and your latencies are generally, you know, your network latencies are under 20 milliseconds pretty much from one end of that region to the other. If you say, I want to be able to tolerate the loss of an entire region, you know, spanning multiple regions, of course, uh, and at least three of them. And, you know, across the U.S., you're looking at, what, 70, 75 milliseconds. And to get from the East Coast of the U.S. to Europe, you're looking at, you know, 75, 80 milliseconds. So there are additional latencies that do come into play, depending upon how big of a disaster you want to be able to gracefully tolerate. Out of just out of curiosity, do you know what percentage of your customers do multi-region versus multi-AZ? Oh, for the ones I've interacted with, um, if I had to guess, I'd say it's somewhere around half of our enterprise customers do multi-region. Mm. Um, a good chunk of them, a good chunk of the others do do multi-AZ, and I think we only have a very small number that you know are all in one AZ. Um, basically because they did a forklift replacement of what they had previously and haven't gotten to the point of, you know, growing beyond that to use the additional capabilities and resources that are available. So really they're only just basically making sure they can survive the failure of a node. um, Yes. And not, not, not what happened at OVH. Correct. Uh, We did have three or four customers that had space in OVH and when the fire came along. I mean, of course, those nodes and that AZ and neighboring one disappeared. But uh, since they were set up to to handle a failure of that nature, CockroachDB kept running and chugging along and they kept processing their workload just fine without those nodes. By the way, you you actually did, I, I don't know if you meant to do this, but you did just refer to the, the data center and the other data center as AZs. Do you know that they were AZs or were they, do you know if they were just two data centers in one AZ? Uh, I don't know for sure. Okay. Um, okay. So you're you're but, like uh, us, yeah. where you just yeah, yeah. Because what what I found when we were looking them up was that there didn't seem to be a good definition of what an AZ was, right? With with yes. with other cloud providers, um, they, they were they still they still they're still a little cagey. 
<laughs> you know, they don't, yeah. they don't want, they don't want to give you a, and I understand that's for security reasons and all that. So, but they're like, it's going to well, be certainly. several miles, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so like a fire in one is not going to take out the other one, but, but a, maybe a, a flood, right? A flood might uh, do that. Yeah. Flood might, or a tsunami might, depending upon yeah. the scenario. And it, speaking of floods, the OVH, data center in question was right next to a big body of water. I could, I don't know which, which body of water that was, but, um, so yeah, so that's good to hear. You had multiple customers. Well, I don't know if that sounds bad, but it's good to hear that the customers that you had involved in the OVH fire, basically they, they didn't skip a beat. It sounds like. And correct. Uh, oh, and when, so when the OVH data center or whatever caught on fire, went down, uh, what did like the database actually end up doing like to just keep um, going up and running? Sure. The rest of the cluster, I mean, we're generally talking about clusters that have five, at least five, if not nine, sometimes dozens, sometimes 100, 150 nodes in it. Mm-hmm. So the loss of one data center with three or four nodes in it out of 100 isn't that huge of a deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a deal, but it's a survivable one. Um when those nodes basically fall off the network or become unavailable for whatever reason, uh, of course, they're the internally within the cluster, their heartbeat times out. Any leaseholders that were on those nodes that are now dead, uh, the rest of the cluster says, you know, we need to elect a new leaseholder for this piece of data. The one that we had disappeared. One of the other replicas within the cluster basically becomes the leaseholder mm-hmm. and starts coordinating the activities for that range of data. Um, we hope, I mean, we're, we're, we're optimistic in that those nodes will come back and it's just a transient network <laughs> issue. So after a, a certain amount of time, which is configurable, the, 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 the cluster says those nodes are gone. We're not assuming they're going to come back anytime soon. And it then up replicates that data within the remainder of the cluster. Okay. Mm. So if we had a replication factor of five and we lost one of the copies, uh, because of the, the fire at OVH, after a few moments, the rest of the cluster, which has four copies of that data still, will say, I'm configured for five. I'm going to take one of the other nodes I have here and copy that data onto it so I now have five copies again. Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and you said that's a configurable time? Uh, yes. By default, I believe it's five minutes, if I remember correctly. Oh, but yeah, it can okay. be set, so it's set down to like a minute and a half. What would is there any reason to set it to higher than that? Does anybody do that? Um, I'm sure somebody has. I can't come up <laughs> okay. with a good use case off the top of my head as to why. So basically, any normal customer within five minutes, um, the the what what happened in OVH? They're like you're like five minutes is long enough for a reboot. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna start replicating, right? Yeah. And it up replicates at that point. And assuming you size the cluster, it's a new term for me, by the way, Dave. Up replicate, up. but I know, <laughs> yeah, it, I know, it, yeah. We all, we're always we, making up terms in IT. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But assuming we size the entire cluster properly up front, we generally design those such that if we're going to uh, build it to tolerate the loss of a region, then the remaining pieces of the cluster with one region gone are going to be enough to still handle the entire workload and hold all the data. Um, if not, I mean, you, if you do things proper, uh, improperly and you're running your 99% full the whole time, mm. then yeah, you're kind of stuck. But You're going to get a lot of pages or but, something. But, I'm assuming you're, you're, later, you're able to connect into some sort of notification system to say, hello, yeah, we need uh, more nodes over here. Um, and we have customers that do that as well. When they start to see an increased load, they'll automatically provision additional nodes in the regions and AZs that they're built into, uh, build them up, join the cluster. Uh, this is not at all uncommon for say Black Friday and the holidays <laughs> for shopping. It's two weeks before, all right, we're gonna add 25% more nodes to the entire cluster for the holidays. Infrastructure yeah. as code, it's a beautiful <laughs> yes. thing. That, so, that, by the way, what, uh, um, that that right there is, is to me, like that is the beauty of the cloud, 
right? Um, it, it, we, 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 I, I was on a on a, um, a live broadcast yesterday with uh, somebody that we were talking about the economics of the cloud, and 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 many people are like, well, if I go to the cloud, I'm going to save money. You might, you might not. You might actually pay more, right? Depending on what you do oh, and certainly. how you do it, you might actually pay more. But you can't do what you just described in the data center. I mean, you can, but you can't just like push a button and have servers <laughs> magically show up and get and turn on, right? right, right get yeah. configured and turn on, especially in the land of COVID, right? That was a real problem for people that were in the data center. But in the cloud, you could go, hey, give me 57 more nodes, stat. Yeah, unless you have enough resources in your own data center that you're basically not using, running a virtualized <laughs> environment to start with. But you have to be big enough to need that. Uh, until that point, yeah, you do, you're not going to just call up and say, give me two more. It and, doesn't and, work and, that way. And the beauty of that is not only can you automatically add them, you can then go a day later, go, I don't need them anymore because Black Friday's over. Right? Yes. That's, yeah, you can then, and you then commission and them then, and do we, things down. Do we down replicate at that point? Uh, no, <laughs> we don't down replicate because the, the replication factor should be constant through that entire that entire time frame. Uh -huh. What we do is pull nodes out. So an individual individual node, after you decommission others, may have more ranges yeah. of data on it than it did previously. Okay. Okay. So there is a process so, for decommissioning nodes that just yes. Just, yeah. Okay. I can't call and that down replicating. Shed, yeah. Uh, nah. But yeah, when you when you decommission a node, it it, it gracefully comes down. It uh -huh. Generously uh, gives up its leaseholder. Uh, uh, functions to mm -hmm. other nodes that are not going to be coming down. Mm -hmm. uh, the data then, you know, it doesn't look at this, uh, the cluster doesn't look at it as this node has just died. It looks at it as we're going to be decommissioning this. We know we need to move that replica of the data somewhere else. We know we need to move that leaseholder somewhere else. And then once all that occurs, the node comes down. Gotcha. So, so it's a much more graceful process yeah. than yeah. dealing with an outage. You can actually plan for that rather than, oh, yeah, everything's just yes. coming down. Yes. So, so going back to when you were talking about the failing over part when the OVH uh, data center went down, how long does the process take? I know you walked through sort of, okay, electing a new leaseholder, detecting that the heartbeat, based on the heartbeat that the previous node is gone. How long does that normally take? Uh, the worst case, well, a lease only lives for nine seconds. Okay. So the, <laughs> basically the, the worst real world scenario you can get into is the moment a node becomes a leaseholder, it dies and it takes, you know, 8.9 seconds, 8.99 seconds for that lease to expire. And then it takes another couple of seconds for the rest of the cluster to elect a new leaseholder. Okay. So you're, you're looking like 12 seconds tops. Yeah. But generally during that time frame, any queries that are hitting that data just kind of pause. Yeah. And then pick back up when the new leaseholder is available. Worst case scenario, you retry a query. Yeah. And it's all which, automatic as well, right? Uh, In terms of the the process on the cockroach DB side. To, yes. Yeah. There, there's nothing manual you have to do on the cockroach yeah. side. Your application does need to be sophisticated enough to do transaction retries. There are multiple reasons a transaction might fail legitimately. Uh, only one of them is, you know, potentially the node I was connected to disappeared yeah. while I was issuing the query. Yeah. But uh, as long as your application is smart enough to to say, hey, something bad happened, I'm going to retry this. It'll get the new lease. It'll, yeah, it'll reconnect to the cluster. It'll get the new leaseholder, and it'll issue the query, and the work starts to happen again. Awesome. So, so let me let me make up a claim from a competitor. Right, I, okay. I, I, I'm literally going to make this claim up, right? Um, and and I want to mm -hmm. see how you respond to it. So let's say I'm, let's say I'm Oracle, right? And and then you know I'm in a competitive situation with with uh, CockroachDB, and I basically say, well, yeah, I mean they're multi-region and you know and the availability, but I mean there's no way they can match a performance of a quote unquote real database like Oracle. Um, so uh, we, we have ways to do that, right? We can, we can replicate data to other regions, but for performance reasons, we keep the database, the main database all within, you know, a data center because that's the way we've always done it. Um, what, what do you think about something like that? Well, one, that's not a 
fictional claim. People have oh. said that before. I literally did make that up. Uh, it comes down to how you want to measure performance. A distributed database is never going to be as fast as a monolithic one if you're looking at an individual query mm-hmm. because you're having to push packets between right. locations. Because you're not, you're not going to acknowledge a write until it's been written everywhere that you um that you add by a majority of the by a majority of the nodes that have that data on it yes by a majority so, of the nodes basically by, by a quorum a qu- quorum yes yeah okay okay gotcha so you can have a you can have a slow node that's just a little slow at this exact moment but not yeah i got it okay that makes so, sense. It, whereas like an oracle uh they have a quorum of one because right. they have one one main piece there, one main right. engine, and they might and have like a they might have a, a mirror, right? Yes, I, I don't even. It's been a while since I've, you know. Uh, but yeah, they might have an, a, a standby node there, a warm or a hot node that's that's you know set up with a load balancer, and you can potentially flip it over. But uh, with Cockroach, we're looking at the overall throughput. Similarly to to being you know uh, addressing the high availability concerns by adding many nodes to a cluster and up replicating data. If we determine that the workload we have today isn't being serviced fast enough in, in aggregate overall mm-hmm. throughput, mm-hmm. we can add more nodes to the cluster and that just adds more computational power mm-hmm. to the database as well. Mm-hmm. So we can handle more connections, more queries at the same time because there's more resources there to do the work. So from, from the standpoint of an individual query, something like an Oracle or a Postgres is going to be faster because there's mm-hmm. only one place to go and one place to to analyze that data and do the work upon it. But once you've reached the limit of how much hardware you can jam into one case, into yeah. one server, once you hit that limit, that thing just isn't going to grow and isn't going to go any faster yeah. no matter what you do to it. Yeah. Yeah. So really, this, this, this is about kind of, value. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead, Persona. Oh, I was just going to say, this is kind of, sorry, not as familiar with the database space, much more familiar with the storage space. For me, this is yes. more like the scale up versus scale out, right? At some point in a single appliance, you can only get to a certain limit, right? Versus yes. a lot of the newer storage technologies are more of a scale out architecture where you keep adding nodes as you need to increase throughput or performance you know, or yes. other capabilities. You know what it reminds me of, Persona, and this is uh, um, data domain versus exegrid. Yep. You know, why is that? Because you've got inline dedupe versus post-process dedupe. And so the question is, how do you measure performance, right? Do you measure performance when everything's done or do you measure performance when the first write is done, right? Yeah. So depending on uh, that, it's very it's very similar. So really the, the question is, you know, it, it sounds like there's no, there's no question. If what you want is the absolute highest performance and you're not concerned about availability, then, hey, go pick whatever, right? But if what you want is is solid performance, configurable performance with solid, uh, um, what, what, what would it be? Durability, would that be the right term? Solid durability? Yeah, durability and consistency. Yeah, durability and consistency, then cockroach is your answer. Does that, yes. does that seem? I mean, if you want to be on the absolute bleeding edge of performance, you're not looking at anything that involves a disk or storage device <laughs> at all. You're doing everything in memory. Yeah. But yeah. that gets really, really expensive really, really fast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, do most of your customers, by the way, do most of your customers run in some kind of cloud scenario? Actually, we have the ability to run just about anywhere. We can run on bare metal. We can run on VMs. We can run in any cloud provider you want. Mm-hmm. You DigitalOcean, Azure, Amazon, Google, any of them, it doesn't matter. Any combination of them, as long as packets can reliably get from one node to all the others. And apparently um, OVH created, as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we had people definitely use an OVH. But uh, yeah, it'll run in any of those. And uh, um, the tricky be- part becomes, how do you peer all of that from a networking standpoint? Mm. That's where the complexity arises. From the database itself, it doesn't particularly care where anything lives as long as it can talk to the rest of the cluster. So here's the thing. Not being a person who lives in that world, one of the things I've always wondered is, so I I have a a multi-AZ or multi-regional, multi-location configuration of your uh, product. And I've got, let's say, 10 nodes in one 
location, 10 in another, 10 in another, and I've got a replication factor of five. How does your product know not to replicate those five copies to five of my 10 nodes in one location? How does it, how does it know that? So you can configure it to do specifically that if you really want to. But I, don't I don't want encourage to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By default, uh, uh, well, when we start the cockroach process on each one of these nodes, each node gets a, a locality flag passed into it that says, I'm part of this region, okay. this AZ, this data center, this rack, however many layers of, of specificity you wish to put in. And based upon that, it's going to say, by default, I'm going to try to spread this data evenly across all the regions I have available. Right. Within each region, I'm going to try to spread it across each AZ evenly, if I can, within that region. Within an AZ that has multiple data centers, I'm going to try and spread it evenly across the data centers in that AZ. And within a given data center, I want to try to spread it evenly across the racks in that data center. That's what it does by default. That's pretty cool. Now, I and guess... I guess the one question would be going back to the why would you ever want to do it within like uh, two AZs or making sure the replication factor is all in one AZ. I'm guessing with like GDPR and some of the regulations, there are probably some customers who need to ensure that their data stays within certain locations, correct? Most definitely. And that uh, does come into play with the the replication and the geolocation configuration uh, because we also have the ability not just for an entire cluster or a database or a table we can slice up an individual table into partitions based upon part of the primary key. For example, if location is part of the primary key on a given table, we can say, all right, all the ranges that correspond to a location of Germany need to remain stored on nodes in Germany. Mm. And that that it, that uh, fulfills the GDPR requirement or it gives you the ability to fulfill yeah. the requirement to stay in a, to, for data locality in a particular region. Interesting. Or easy. You can also do you know, similar, or if you don't want a particular piece of data to be governed by somebody that has very strict regulations somewhere, saying, for this table, never put it <laughs> in this region. And it'll do its best to put it everywhere else. And well, what happens like if it can't meet the... Okay, good. <laughs> well, what happens if it can't meet the replication criteria based on that? Um... That comes into planning. Okay. Uh, at, at the moment, it's it's not a easy computational problem to solve necessarily. Uh, if you were to do something along the lines of saying, I want five copies of the data, I have two AZs in Germany, and there are only four nodes in Germany. Yeah. Of course, you're not going to put a multiple copies of the data on one node. Yep. So right out of the right out of the gate there, you're going to have a range of data that is under-replicated. Okay. You can't get five copies of it. Yeah. And that shows up in the the, the DB console with okay. big yeah big red big red <laughs> numbers saying hey I got under replicated ranges this isn't good we should do something about this gotcha makes sense so it does take some planning it does take some coordination but yeah it'll do its best to spread everything to wherever you say this particular piece of data can live I think there's really only one question left to ask yeah. Prasanna. I know backups Dave. yeah what, what do you, do you do with is? backups. <laughs> yeah. How do you back this up, Dave? <laughs> I can imagine it's very complicated. Yes. Uh, and it works in parallel for both backups and restores, which is, is an interesting computational problem. Uh, but the, the most straightforward mechanism is you point it at either a, a Google storage container or an S3 bucket and say, put it all here. And in parallel, it, it puts all of that data there. Uh, based upon the schedule you've determined. We have uh, customers with various use cases. And when you get into the financial sector, you're looking at much more strict and, mm -hmm. and robust requirements there. And they may do a full backup once an hour in incrementals every five minutes. Um, and the yeah, so trucks out. You, and, actually, and, you actually create a, a backup of the database stored in object storage. Yes. For them. And, and that's it's all part of... Okay, so this is this is you you uh, um, <laughs> this product is offered as software, not as SaaS, right? Uh, it is offered as both. Okay, there is an open source version that lacks a few of the fancy geo partitioning uh, features. There, mm -hmm. There's a yeah, 
six or 12 features that aren't included with the open source version. Mm-hmm. The enterprise license unlocks those and allows you to, to use them. And then we also have Cockroach Cloud, which is basically a database as a service. Okay, uh, so you, is, have, you have both. Oh, uh, the, and Cockroach Cloud is rapidly evolving on a day-by-day basis. Gotcha. So with both of those, I can go in. With the SaaS version, is the backup like automatically configured or like, go ahead. Yeah, you have the ability to configure it and uh, yeah, point at it in either an S3 bucket you've built somewhere else or, or a, what, a GS URL, URI uh, in Google. And uh, basically it's, we, we, we treat those buckets and those storage pieces as just a big file dump. And uh, if you configure it for multi-region replication, then yeah, your, your backups are everywhere at that point. If you didn't have multi-region buckets, like say you're writing to S3, do you see some of your customers writing to two different S3 buckets or do they normally just yes. write to a single S3 bucket and then use like um, S3's replication functionality to like cross-region replication to replicate that somewhere else? What do you uh, yeah, both mechanisms. Okay. Uh, there's, you know, I'm going to have two nearly identical series of, of backup schedules that go to different locations, or I'm going to put it in one place and then have something offline that copies it somewhere else as well. And do you encourage customers to back up the database? Oh, most definitely. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, you say that like, you say that like, well, of course, but trust me, like, well, especially in the, multi-node cluster like database world there are definitely some databases they're like why would you want to back this up where mm. we we can survive 15 simultaneous failures you don't need mm. backups and i'm like you can still drop a table dudes you know <laughs> yeah a couple of interesting details there but uh yeah it's it's the same argument as you know i have a rate array why do i need to back it up exactly. yep. the same exact logic exactly. applies there. but i'm <laughs> the same argument for 25 years dave <laughs> yes. uh the the way all of the get into another database specific piece here multi-version concurrency control which operates under the hood to try and uh, alleviate contention and and uh, basically it ensures that serializable isolation we keep that around by default for 25 hours. So we have a history of what every value was over the past 25 hours. Mm. One that allows you to do time travel queries. So if you drop a table, you can say, oh, I'm going to, you know, quickly back up what I have, including that MVCC log. And then I can restore as of system time, one second before I drop the table and bring that table right back. MVCC. Uh, multi-version concurrency control. Thank you. I I, I almost had it. I was going to guess, but <laughs> yeah. I almost had it. But but yeah, it allows us to both query data that existed several hours ago in the state it was several hours ago and bring it back or set kind, the current value to what it was then. Kind of like a recycle bin? Uh, from a very, very high, from a very simplistic standpoint, yes. I'm a very simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of think of it as an undo button. It's, mm. it's not as simple as that. Right. It's not as straightforward as but that. The, there's, that there's a lot of, of implications. Time, but t- what did what you time traveling queries? Time travel queries. That's amazing. That's crazy. Say, <laughs> select blah, blah, blah from my table where blah, 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 whatever filtering cr- uh, criteria you have as of three hours ago. Yeah. The as, as of is not a normal SQL uh, command. No, that's one of our additions. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that allows you to do, which does help with performance, mm-hmm. if you don't particularly care that you are getting the most recent version or value for a particular piece of data, uh, we have the concept of follower reads, which says go to the closest replica of the data for the query I'm issuing and give me whatever's there mm. uh, because it will be no more than four and a half seconds out of date. So mm. you don't care about the last four and a half seconds. Like you're doing an analytical, you know, analytical queries aren't great for transactional systems, but if you're trying to do a big aggregate of data, then you can just say, you know, uh, using the follower read function and you get the performance of having a local copy or the closest copy of the data without uh, uh, with the, the, the trade-off that you may not get the yeah, data that is most I, recent. I, I can fantasize of some queries of like, I want to know how many Daves I have in this database. And if I'm off by one, I don't care. 
right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Things of that nature, or looking at averages. If you got, you know, if you got a hundred thousand values and ten of them are a hair high and ten of them are a hair low because they're they're out of you know five seconds out of date. In the average, it doesn't matter. Right. But right. that gets into an analytical workload. Uh, which is another topic entirely. Cockroach very much focuses on a transactional workload, uh, which is why we specialize in that serializable isolation level. Well, it sounds like the best of uh, both worlds, right? <laughs> uh, I like it. Yeah, there, There's a lot of fancy things there and a lot of pieces moving under the hood. There's, there's a lot of complexity. <laughs> uh, this has been fascinating. I'm really glad that you reached out to us. Thanks. I'm glad I could, glad I could assist in some way because there's a lot of interesting stuff going out, uh, going on in these various spaces, and there's are non-trivial computational problems, and especially from an academic and theoretical side, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. And Dave, I think you mentioned that CockroachDB there is an open source version as well, right? For people who want to just yes, try it uh, out and get Cockroach Core, you can download it. Uh, let's see, we got builds for Linux. Mac OS and Windows, um, I would very much steer people towards the Linux or the Docker image mm-hmm. for it if you want to play with it. Mm. Um, I mean, you can you can do stuff, but yeah, like running it on a laptop, it's probably not going to be the best experience <laughs> you've ever had. I want to run a multi-regional database across six old Windows laptops. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it. In fact, we used to do demos where we would have a number of Raspberry Pis sitting on a table and have a, a cockroach running on them right. with, with some kind of interactive workload appearing on a big screen. Right. And somebody would go at one of the pies with a hammer. And nice. everything just kept running. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thanks to our listeners. And uh, make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it. Instead, it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit. Completely done. Maybe one day. Yeah.